is from Ecclesiastes. We're going to be reading from Ecclesiastes 6. As it turns out, the last time I was up here, we were on Ecclesiastes 5. So, kind of fitting. Um, You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 475. Ecclesiastes 6. Okay. Chapter 6. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so, so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous is evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same do they not all go to the same place? All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what man is what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? May God bless the reading of his words. Are we on? One of my favorite preachers is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher in the 20th century in Britain, and we even named our son Martin after him. And that's Martin with a Y, M-A-R-T-Y-N. And as I read through the works of Martin Lloyd-Jones over my time in seminary, there was one little poem that kept on coming up in his sermons, and it goes like this. Two men looked through prison bars. One saw mud, the other stars. Now, <clears throat> when, when Martin Lloyd-Jones was sharing that poem, his point was, is that life is divided into two kinds of people. You have the people who see mud, and you have the people who see stars. You have the pessimists who see the mud, and then you have the optimists who see the stars. So let me see the hands today. How many of you see mud Raise your hand. Let's see the pessimists amongst us. Okay, we have some muddy people over here, a few mud mudsters over there, okay? How many of you see the stars? How many optimists do we have today? Okay, well, congregation is basically full of optimists rather than pessimists. Um, 
<coughs> which I find very interesting. <coughs> but why does this matter at all? It's because when you come to the Scripture, and especially when you come to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, you don't see either one. Now, a lot of you think that Ecclesiastes is depressing or pessimistic. I know because you've, you've shared that with me at different um, points. But actually, as, as you go through Ecclesiastes, you see that the writer to Ecclesiastes is neither a pessimist nor an optimist. Instead, what he is, is a realist. He sees life the way it is, and then at times he draws lessons from how it is as to how we should be living our life. Now, as we come to verse 1, I want you to see that there's a principle that just jumps out. He says, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. He says he's seen another evil. Now, here this the writer to Ecclesiastes is not necessarily talking so much about moral evil as he's talking about situational evil. And as we look at this verse, we can realize that there's a a large principle that guides our lives today, and it's very important for you to face it today. And it goes like this. There's something terribly wrong with our world. And if you're not clear about that, you're not a realist. You might be an optimist, you might be a pessimist, The optimists think that the world isn't really quite that bad. The pessimists are so depressed that they don't even want to get out of bed in the morning sometimes. But what you need to be this morning is a realist. To see, like the writer to Ecclesiastes, that there is something terribly wrong with this world. What's been happening over the last week is that President Trump and many other world leaders have been at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. And do you know what the theme of this year's World Economic Forum is? For the first time, they they sort of have got it right in light of the writer to Ecclesiastes. The theme is this, creating a shared future in a fractured world. And so all the world leaders that are coming together are addressing the fact that our world is a fractured world. And everywhere you look, you see evidences of our world being fractured. I have a question for those of you who are parents here today. How are you helping your kids deal with the world as it is, from a realistic perspective? I think that there's two great dangers that especially we face as parents connected to how we raise our kids to deal with the world as it is. The first great danger is that we ignore the problems that there are in the world and we pretend like they don't exist. We saw in the last few weeks how that happened connected to the many Olympic athletes who were under the care of a doctor. And that doctor actually was sexually abusing them. And many people turned a blind eye. Many officials at Michigan State University just turned um, their ear another direction when people started reporting what was going on. And they tried to ignore it because they couldn't possibly believe that somebody who's in a position like that could be actually doing that to so many people. And so we had 156 victims testify at that doctor's um, sentencing trial about what they had gone through. Now that's telling me that there were a lot of parents who actually were even in the room when these abuse situations were happening that were ignoring what was going on. 
Now, parents, you have to wake up and help your kids realize that the world that we live in is a challenging world. And just as we have the problem of moral evil to deal with, we also have the problem of situational evil to deal with. And there are bad things that happen at all points and times in our lives, and we have to help our children to wrestle with that. The other problem that I think we face as parents sometimes, on the one hand, we want to ignore things and maybe not talk to our kids about some of the more difficult things that there are in our world to deal with. But I think that another challenge for parents is a lot of parents try and insulate their kids. They try and protect their kids. They try and keep their kids in Christian schools or in home schools or in Christian environments and then they go off to Christian um, college and Don't misunderstand me. I'm not knocking Christian education. I'm absolutely for it. But I think that there can be a problem sometimes where people don't want their children to deal with the real world out there. And by trying to insulate the kids, instead the kids don't deal with the world as the writer of Ecclesiastes sees it. A world where there is another evil under the sun and that evil weighs heavily upon all of mankind. Evie and I have two kids. Uh, Allison's with us. She's living with us in Boston. And Martin is living in Taipei. And our kids are now adults. But when our kids were just kids and they were in their teens, we took them quite frequently on a missions trip that we tried to do every year at Chinese New Year time. We went to Pattaya, Thailand, which is probably the darkest city in our world today where you have more prostitutes per capita than you have 7-Elevens in Taiwan. And when you go to Pattaya... Everywhere you go, you see darkness. And it's not the kind of city that you think that you'd want to take your kids to. But we were handing out Bibles to mainland Chinese tourists who were on vacation during the Chinese New Year period. And we did this over a 10-year period. Every Chinese New Year, we'd try and um, uh, bring a team from Taiwan of Mandarin speakers to work with some Southern Baptist missionaries and missions teams coming over from the U.S. And over a 10-year period, we handed out a million Bibles to Chinese tourists. It was an amazing ministry, but it was a ministry that took place against the backdrop of one of the worst environments you could possibly imagine. There were ladyboys walking past um, the, the teams every night that had been dancing for a, a lot of the tourists in the shows. There were prostitutes everywhere you went. And as a result of my going to that city so many times, and then I have a doctor there for my skin cancer treatments, Over the years, I went many, many times each year to visit my doctor in that particular city. I got a chance to get to know some of the people that a lot of parents would want to keep their kids away from. I befriended some of the prostitutes there, some of the male prostitutes, and I interviewed them for a book that I'm writing on the subject of how the church should deal with the issue of homosexuality. And as I got to know some of these male prostitutes, I realized that most all of them had wives and kids. And it was a very sad thing of what they were involved in. So as our kids found out about what what I was doing and the people I was reaching out to, our kids said, hey, we want to meet your friends, Dad. So I'm like, okay, so let's invite my prostitute friends and their families to dinner. And we had to brief our kids on what subjects they could they could ask and what subjects they couldn't talk about um, with our friends who we were inviting to dinner. We made a choice, and I'm sharing that illustration to encourage some of you parents. We made a choice not to insulate our kids. Our kids became friends with the prostitutes that we helped raise money to get them out of prostitution. 
And then we continue um, to stay in touch with these families and to maintain um, a vibrant friendship with him as well. So we made a, a decision to take our kids with us to one of the worst cities in the world. So I challenge you parents, will you take the world as it is in Ecclesiastes and help your kids live in that world? You can't run away from it. The error of the church, if you read church history, is monasticism. People running out into caves to try and escape the reality of the world that we live in, which is full of moral evil and situational evil. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, you shouldn't do that, and you can't do that. Ever since the Internet, there's no way you can completely insulate your kids from all that there is out there. And just as soon as you find out some bad report about this thing that happened there or that thing that happened there, your kids are going to know about it, too. So how do we deal with this? How do we live as Christians and as believers? And what do we do to try and make sense of the world that there is? When you come to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, what you have is you have several principles that teach us uh, how the world is and, in a sense, uh, what people have to deal with. And so I want to share with you some of those challenging things that we have to deal with. And notice the first one that happens. The first principle, and I'll ask you to pull out your sermon outlines and, and follow along. The first principle is that you can't enjoy your wealth and, uh, and position and someone else enjoys them instead. So that is an evil. What happens is, is that if you work all of your life and you get possessions and you have a position in life and then you find that someone else actually is the person who comes along and enjoys what it is that you've worked for, that is something that the Bible says is a situational evil. There's something wrong with that. And yet it happens. Uh, I shared with you, you all a few weeks ago about a friend of mine who was into Bitcoin and he made all this money in Bitcoin. He tried to get me into Bitcoin years ago, I mean, uh, months ago, and I didn't get into it. And then he made megabucks. And I, I had a chance on this <clears throat> last trip to Taiwan where I was just in Taiwan and China over the last two weeks. I had a chance to have lunch with that man and his wife and to talk to them. And so we were trying to get the number. How much did you make? You know, Larry, tell us how much did you make from Bitcoin? We finally got out of him that in the last month or so he had made an extra $100,000 on on Bitcoin. And I thought, hey, that's awesome, man. I'm going to give you my money and maybe you can make me um, some money. Well, let me tell you what happened. After that lunch, I went to China, I came back to Taiwan for a few days, and then I didn't see Larry again, and then I went, went on to L.A., and when, when I was in L.A. for the last few days, right before I came here, I get an email from his wife. You know, you know what she said? She said, Larry had a massive heart attack, and he's in a coma. He's worked to build up all this money, all these possessions, and now neither he nor his family are going to enjoy it. Why? Because Larry didn't let his wife know where all their money is and how to annex it. So she doesn't even know how to get the 100000 that he's made recently out of Bitcoin. Now that is messed up, people. And that is how our world is. That a man at 47 with no history of any kind of illness, boom, has a heart attack just like that. And so these are the things that bother the writer to Ecclesiastes and bother us as well. Here's another thing um, that can bother us. It's when you have a long life without enjoyment and a proper burial. There is something terribly wrong with that. And this is what 
the writer talks about in verse three. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness and in darkness. Its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man even if he lives a thousand years, twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. <clears throat> Some people have a long life, but they don't have enjoyment. And the reason is, is because in their long life, their life is just full of difficulty and difficulty and difficulty. And challenge and challenge and challenge. It is a myth to think that as you get older, things get better. Sometimes when you get older, things get worse. So here the writer speaks about a man <clears throat> who lives a long time, has a long life, but he doesn't have enjoyment in his life. <clears throat> and when he dies, he doesn't have a proper burial. Maybe he's just left out on the street. A very, very sad thing that happens today. But notice <clears throat> at the end of uh, verse 6, there is another stark reality that we have to face if we want to be realistic. And that reality is that death overtakes us all. Do you see that at the end of verse 6? Do not all go to the same place. doesn't matter if a man lived a thousand years over twice. And here's a stillborn baby who never saw the light of day. That both the stillborn baby went to a place of death as did the man who lived his years so long upon the earth. And that is the end of us all. And it is something that you have to face. And I think that <clears throat> there's a great danger today in the world that we live in to not talk about death. It used to be more of a reality. Many, many years ago, I would say 70 years ago even, people talked about death. It was much more in their faces. But now, it's not something here in America that we talk about or we face a lot. And I think that what happens is, is that a lot of people think as if they're immortal, but they know in the back of their minds they aren't. Now, there's two times in a person's life where they think they're immortal. The first is when they're young. When you're young, you think that nothing will happen to you. And then all of a sudden, there's a car accident. All of a sudden, there's a school shooting. All of a sudden, there's something that gets your attention that says even teenagers die young. So sometimes when you're young, you think you're going to live a long time, but actually that's not the case. The other time where I think people think they're immortal, and I see this all the time, is when they're on vacation. Um, <clears throat> when people are on vacation, they think that they're like Superman and can do amazing things and nothing's going to happen to them. Did you realize that when people go to Hawaii, there, there's more deaths per capita on vacation than there is of people in the general society because people come to Hawaii, do all kinds of crazy things. Uh, when we lived in Hawaii in 1998, I was driving to the fitness center um, one night and I heard something that sounded like a kaboom. And then I kept on driving into the intersection. And what happened was, is this man was driving a moped. <coughs> Excuse me. He was driving a moped and he didn't have on a helmet and he was on vacation and he hit another driver 
And in fact, when he hit the other car, he went up in the air and then he went under another car and the man was dead. And I was the first person who got there. And then about eight other people stopped. And then the, the nine of us together lifted the car off of the man. And we were hoping that he was still alive, but he wasn't alive. He was completely dead. He came to Hawaii for vacation. He left in a casket. <clears throat> a young man in his 20s thought he was immortal and found out that on vacation, he should have been more careful. So, brothers and sisters, you have to face this stark reality that at some time in the future, death is going to overtake you and everybody you love. So the question I have for you today is, is how are you facing it? Do you have a hope that goes beyond this world? Do you know for sure that if you left this life tomorrow, that you would be in the presence of God? You see, that is the eternal hope that God wants every single one of us to have. And if there's anything that Ecclesiastes does is is it forces us to want to look to someone who's seen the grave, who's been to the grave, who's come back from the grave and who can deliver us from the grave. And that's the amazing thing about Jesus. He is the one who didn't just come into the world to heal people. And to make people's lives easier, he was the one who stood in front of Lazarus's grave and he said, Lazarus, come forth after he wept because his friend had died. And that same Jesus is standing before all of you today. And he's saying, I offer you the same resurrection life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Do you believe this? That's the essence of the faith that Ecclesiastes points us to grab. So though death overtakes us all, we do have the hope that we have in Jesus and we praise the Lord for that. But notice the next principle. It comes from verse seven. I called it this. The rat race and work never ends. Do you see that in verse seven? Everyone's toil is for their mouth. Yet their appetite is never satisfied. Doesn't matter how many times you eat the next day or even three hours later, you're going to be hungry again. That's the sad thing. Now, this is an interesting verse because it was written at a time before we have refrigerators. Uh, I know that Donald Trump's refrigerator in Air Force One cost twenty four million dollars. It was written um, in a time before Air Force One got its new refrigerator. This verse was written before Costco. This verse was written before Trader Joe's. And, you know, the amazing thing about eating today is, is you don't have to cook it. You can go and buy it and like sort of like heat it in the microwave and and then just eat it. You don't have to like prepare it like people used to have to prepare their food. Um, I know some of you still like to prepare your food, but I like to just put it in the microwave. But then our microwave blew up last night. So now this morning I couldn't put anything in the, in the microwave. But the point is, is it doesn't matter whether you're fixing your own food or whether you're buying it from Trader Joe's or Costco or something like that, if you eat once, you're going to have to eat again. And whether or not your toil is for making it or whether or not your toil is to make the money so you can buy the food that you that you then eat in the morning, at noon, in the evening, and then the next day, and it keeps on and it keeps on and it keeps on going, you're never satisfied. And that's challenging. And this is something that the writer to Ecclesiastes wants us to to face. It's like a rat race. It just keeps on going and work and it never ends. Just like meal preparation never ends work. The work to pay for the meal never, never ends. And so the Bible calls it toil. Energy expended 
for a reason. And that reason is simply that we can eat and make it to the next day. There's another principle that comes from the scripture. It's that wisdom seems like it doesn't pay. Verse 8. What advantage have the wise over fools? When you look at our world today, if there's anything that will get your attention, it's the fact that it seems like the people who try and live their lives in a godly way and follow the scriptures sometimes have a harder life than the foolish people. I even see this connected to politics around our our world today. And it seems like it, it points that there are people who followed wisdom and they didn't achieve the same position as those who did not follow wisdom. And as you see this in countries around our world today, it causes you to to scratch your head and say, isn't there something wrong with the world? Shouldn't wisdom be what puts a person in office rather than foolishness? But unfortunately, in many countries, in many countries, that is not the case. And then there's another challenging thing we have to face. Look at the second half of verse eight. What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? When the poor do the right thing, it doesn't seem to profit them. And that's a sad reality. That often the poor people that I've known in my life, especially from my time and Evie's in my time of living in Indonesia, they often do the right thing. But even though they do the right thing, they're mistreated by their bosses. They're mistreated by their employers. They're mistreated by the government. They're mistreated by society simply because they are poor. And that is a horrible evil. But I think it's interesting because it's a situational evil. They're poor not because they did anything wrong. They're poor because they were born in an environment. Why was I born in America, in a rich country, to middle class parents? And yet my best friend in Indonesia was was born in a poor village and then had to move his family to a slum in Jakarta. I want to show you where my best friend lived in in. Jakarta lives. Look at this. Do you see this? People, this is a trash dump. And they built a slum, a little shantytown slum on top of the trash dump. And when I went to visit the the residents of that area one day, I noticed that the kids were playing on top of cobra pits. Now, that's a situational evil. From no fault of theirs. We can't blame them for that. They were born in a poor place and we were born in a rich place. And you live right now in Lexington or Waltham or Boston or any of these wonderful places where you live in a great house. Brothers and sisters, that's an evil. Because these poor people, even when they're doing the right thing and working hard and trying to be the best that they possibly can be, it doesn't seem to profit them. And it's a terrible evil that we have to face in the world. And it leads you to the conclusion that we see in verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named and what humanity is has been known. What is he saying? In verse 10, he's saying that it is what it is. That's life the way it is. Whatever exists has already been named and what humanity is has been known. This is the life the way it is. And this is what we have to deal with. Brothers and sisters, we live in a messed up world. How are you going to face it? How are you going to come out from the reality of that and still hold to your faith and live to the Lord? Notice how the text ends in this passage. 
I'm going to leave out verse 11 and just jump right into verse 12. For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? That's telling us that life is short and seems meaningless. Some of you might live to be 72. Uh, Some of you might live to be 94. Some of you might make it to 100. Some of you might make it to 60. Some of you, you'll be lucky if you make it to 40. Um, I'll be happy if I make it to 72. Uh, I don't know what your magic age is, but I do know this. That whether you live to be 72, 50, 40, 100, even 103, like Shang Kai-shek's widow did, Madam Shang Kai-shek, that's short. Your life is short. James says your life is like a vapor. So don't brag and boast about what you're going to do and how come tomorrow I'm going to go to this city and I'm going to start a business and I'm going to make all this money. You don't know. Your life is like a vapor. You're here today. You're gone tomorrow. And the conclusion that the writer comes to in verse 12 is that those few days are meaningless days because if ultimately your life is just going to end, then it leads to a sense of meaningless and despair. And then in the end of verse 12, we have a very interesting question. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Who knows what is good for a person in life? And who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? The writer of Ecclesiastes asked a question. And the question focuses in on the fact of who can tell us what is good And what is bad? When you see the world so messed up, it causes you to wonder then, well, then how do I live? What is my standard? Where do I go to to find the answer to what is right and what is wrong? If godliness doesn't seem to profit me, wisdom doesn't seem to profit me, the poor can't seem to make it out of their poverty. If we live in this kind of a situation, then how is it possible to know what is good for a person in their life during the few and meaningless days you pass on through in this life. Where do you go for your values? Where do you go for your standards? Are you seeking a religion that's going to lead you to a certain place, a place of wealth, a place of profit? Are you seeking a religion that leads you to a point of wisdom and acceptance of the reality, the difficulties in the world that then causes you not to chuck your Christian faith or to throw your Bible in the trash can, but causes you to hold more deeply to the Savior who faced the deepest reality that we have in in this world, which is the reality of sin and the reality of death, and faced it for you and then overcame for you. Brothers and sisters, Ecclesiastes leads us to a cross where life is no longer meaningless and our days are not short. They're eternal when we embrace the Savior who conquered for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that though we are faced with a challenging world full of situational evil, full of moral problems, full of questions that we can't answer, and full of challenges that it's hard for us to deal with, yet you give us a future and a hope. You give us eternal life. You give us a hope that endures past death. And Lord, I pray you'd wake us up. Get our attention and help us to be the people who walk with you and who hold to you in your promises as we face the difficulties and the challenges in our few and meaningless days. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.